going to be in Ezekiel 12 tonight. Last week we finished Ezekiel 11, and that was Ezekiel's statement of the New Covenant. As I mentioned last time, the New Covenant is not a New Testament phenomenon. It's solidly in Deuteronomy, it's solidly in Ezekiel, solidly in Isaiah, solidly in Jeremiah. Ezekiel has it a couple of times, and the first one was in 11, and Ezekiel's metaphor is that God will remove the heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Jeremiah's metaphor is that he will write the covenant on their heart. Moses' metaphor is circumcision of the heart, but it's all essentially the same thing. God will do a heart change. God will restore his people to the land. He will be their God, and they will be his people. So in 12, we're going to have a number of things here. We're going to go back into the prophecy by pantomime. You remember there have been a couple of those where he lies on one side and bakes his bread on a dung fire and, and so forth. This is going to be another one of the pantomimes that he's doing. Let's read it down to verse 7 and then come back and give it some historical context. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, you dwell in the midst of a rebellious house, who have eyes to see but do not see, who have ears to hear but do not hear, for they are a rebellious house. As for you, son of man, prepare for yourself an exile's baggage, and go into exile by day in their sight. You shall go like an exile from your place to another place in their sight. Perhaps they will understand though they are a rebellious house. You shall bring out your baggage by day in their sight as baggage for exile, and you shall go out yourself at evening in their sight as those who must go into exile. In their sight, dig through the wall and bring your baggage out through it. In their sight, you shall lift the baggage upon your shoulder and carry it out at dusk. You shall cover your face that you may not see the land for I have made you a sign for the house of Israel. So obviously the pantomime here is going in and coming out in exile. Understand that this pantomime is being performed for the exiles who are in Babylon. The prophecy is about the remnant that is left in Israel. So he's doing this pantomime for people who are already in exile. And the idea here is that this is what's going to happen to the people that are left back in Jerusalem. I'm not sure about this, but my guess is, as we said at the beginning, this first part of Ezekiel, the prophecies are given in the interval between the first and second invasions of the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar. And all of the prophecies are given to the ones who are already in exile. But they are also aimed at the ones who are still there. Jeremiah and Ezekiel are both prophesying simultaneously. Jeremiah is in Jerusalem, Ezekiel's in Babylon. But they're doing it at the same time. And there's correspondence between the two. So you remember that one of the things that was going about by false prophets is 
we can bust out of here. Let's go into rebellion here, bust out and get back to Israel. And Jeremiah sends a letter from Israel to Babylon saying, guys, you're going to be there for 70 years. That's what God said, period. So what you want to do is you want to seek the peace of the place where you are. You want to build houses. You want to marry and give in marriage. You want to do everything you can to improve the place where you are because the better it is there, the easier your captivity will be. So you have correspondence, if you will, between the two groups of Jews. And by the way, these are Jews. They are Judah. Ephraim has been gone for 125 years or so. So this is Judah. So what I don't know is the purpose of Ezekiel's prophecy here, whether or not it's intended to get back by a correspondence to the people in Israel, or whether it is intended to serve as a record so once it happens, God can say, see, I told you so, or whether it is intended to be an explanation to those who are in exile of the absolute calamity that is going to happen to those who are left behind. The other thing that could be going on is this pantomime could be to reinforce Jeremiah's letter, which is to say, this is what happens if you rebel. The other theory that I had is that with this prophecy ahead of time, when the exiles in Babylon hear of the calamity that has befallen those back in Israel, they will understand that this was coming. It's not just Nebuchadnezzar woke up on the wrong side of the bed one day and decided to go wipe out the Jews. God is setting this up. So, as I say, I'm not sure just exactly who the target audience of this is. It could be all of them. I mean, you know, there's no reason it has to be just one. The other thing about this is this business of those who had eyes to see but see not, ears to hear but hear not, for they are a rebellious house. You remember that's also the charge that is given to Isaiah. Go and prophesy to these people, but close their eyes and close their ears so that they won't listen to you and they won't understand because I have decided that they're going into exile. Furthermore, this is a reference, at least in my opinion, to the description of idols that happen in the Psalms and everywhere else. That idols have eyes but do not see, they have ears but do not hear, they have hands but do not handle and those who worship them become like them. So the idea here is this is a rebellious house who have eyes but do not see and ears but do not hear. One of the reasons, the big reason, that Judah is taken into exile to Babylon is because of idol worship. And so what has happened is because of idol worship, they have become like the idols that they have worshipped which means, yeah, you got eyes, but you don't see anything, and you have ears, but don't hear anything. Furthermore, one of the things that happens all over the New Testament is Yeshua, when he gives parables and so forth, says, let him who has an ear hear. 
And what I'm suggesting to you is that echoes back to the prophets. In other words, Yeshua, when he comes to Israel, comes as an Old Testament prophet because although Israel is not involved in idol worship per se, they have fallen into disobedience to the Torah because they've written their own Torah on top of God's Torah. Their Torah, if you will, has become an idol, in air quotes. It's not a traditional idol in the sense of what happened that got them sent into Babylon, but it is certainly something that they place between themselves and God. And it is something that they regard as having more authority than Moses. It's something that you look to to get something that you should look to God for. In the Second Temple period, the rabbis set up the Oral Torah, which in many cases is in direct opposition to what Moses says. And one of the things that Yeshua does is he says, you guys have made the law of God to no effect by the traditions of men. So what he's talking about is oral Torah, something that you have placed between yourselves and what God says. Back to the history. So this is in the time of Zedekiah. He is the guy that's left back there to run the place after the first invasion by Nebuchadnezzar. So he's the king. And what happens physically on the ground is when Nebuchadnezzar comes back and besieges the city, Zedekiah and his court try and escape in the night. They tunnel through the wall and they sneak out at night and they head for the Jordan River. So what is being done here in pantomime is acting out his going into exile. And what happens is the Babylonians run him down and catch him, bring him back, slaughter all of his children in front of him, and then blind him and take him back to Babylon for the rest of his life. So this pantomime that's going on here is a prophecy of what's going to happen with Zedekiah when Nebuchadnezzar goes back the second time. So this business of take the baggage of an exile, as they tried to escape, they took baggage and tried to get out of the place at night and tunneling through the wall and all that kind of stuff. This is all a pantomime of what's going to happen to Zedekiah and his court under the second invasion of Nebuchadnezzar. So verse 7, And I did as I was commanded. I brought out my baggage by day as baggage for exile. And in the evening I dug through the wall with my own hands. I brought my baggage at dusk, carrying it on my shoulder in their sight. In the morning the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, has not the house of Israel, the rebellious house, said to you, What are you doing? Say to them, Thus says the Lord God, This oracle concerns the prince in Jerusalem and all the house of Israel who are in it. So we're talking about the people who are back in the land. Say, I am a sign for you. As I have done, so shall it be done to them. They shall go into exile, into captivity. And the prince who is among them shall lift his baggage upon his shoulder at dusk and shall go out. They shall dig through the wall to bring him out through it. He shall cover his face. 
that he may not see the land with his eyes. And I will spread my net over him, and he shall be taken in my snare. And I will bring him to Babylon, the land of the Chaldeans, yet he shall not see it, and he shall die there. And this reference to, I will bring him to Babylon, yet he will not see it, is because he's going to be blinded by Nebuchadnezzar. As I understand it, what they typically did, if anybody cares, is they would heat up a sword blade and put it in front of your eyes. And what happens is your eye then becomes like a hard-boiled egg. When you heat it up, turns white and opaque, and it would basically cook the eyeballs like an egg, blinding. The point that he will go to Babylon, but he won't see it, is a reference to the fact that he's blind. So verse 14, And I will scatter toward every wind all who are around him, his helpers and all his troops, and I will unsheath the sword after them, and they shall know that I am the Lord when I disperse them among the nations and scatter them among the countries. But I will let a few of them escape from the sword, from famine and pestilence, that they may declare all their abominations among the nations where they go, and may know that I am the Lord. I am going to leave enough of them alive so that when they go into exile, they can explain what happened. And part of the reason for prophecy, and it's the same thing with Yeshua when he prophesies in Israel, at some point the prophet ceases to speak plainly and starts speaking in parables, in riddles, so that the people are not understood. And it's only after they go into exile that they figure out what was being said. And the purpose of the prophecy is so that they will be able accurately to say what happened and why it happened to them. Verse 17. And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, eat your bread with quaking, and drink water with trembling and with anxiety, and say to the people of the land, Thus says the Lord God concerning the inhabitants of Jerusalem, in the land of Israel, they shall eat their bread with anxiety and drink water in dismay. In this way their land will be stripped of all it contains on account of the violence of all those who dwell in it. And the inhabited city shall be laid waste and the land shall become a desolation. And you shall know that I am the Lord. So notice the reason for all of this is because of the violence that they are doing. They are not looking after the fatherless the stranger, and the widow. They're, in fact, oppressing them. At some point, God says, enough of that. And the reason for all of this is measure for measure. You have done such violence, and so will it be done to you. As I've said before in this series, it wasn't unauthorized use of the reproductive system that doomed Sodom and Gomorrah. It was the violence that they were doing. Not that God approves of unauthorized use of the reproductive system, but that isn't what sends you into exile. It's the violence that very often accompanies that kind of stuff. 21. And the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, what is this proverb that you have about the land of Israel saying? The days grow long and every vision comes to nothing. All right. What that proverb is, is... We have all of these predictions from the prophets, and time has gone by, and they have not come to pass. So the equivalent today would be, where is the promise of his coming? It's been 2,000 years. 
What happens, of course, is when they have given up on expecting the prophecies to be fulfilled, they then go off the rails because they're not looking for the prophecy to be fulfilled. So this, the days grow long and every vision comes to nothing is, gee, it's been a long time since we got the prophets and none of this has happened. I guess we don't have to worry about it. 23. Tell them, therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will put an end to this proverb and they shall no more use it as a proverb in Israel. But say to them, the days are near and the fulfillment of every vision. For there shall be no more any false vision or flattering divination within the house of Israel. False vision and flattering divination. In chapter 13, we'll talk about the business of prophets prophesying for profit. They will say whatever will get them a good commission. And that falls under the false vision and flattering divination category. Verse 25. For I am the Lord. I will speak the word that I will speak, and it will be performed. It will no longer be delayed, but in your days, O rebellious house, I will speak the word and perform it, declares the Lord God. And the word of the Lord came to me, son of man. Behold, they of the house of Israel say, the vision that he sees is for many days from now, and he prophesies of times far off. Therefore say to them, this says the Lord God, none of my words will be delayed any longer, but the word that I speak will be performed, declares the Lord God. If you've spent any time in Christian eschatology and prophecy and stuff like that, you've got all sorts of opinions about end times prophecy, and it's this kind of stuff. Been 2,000 years. If this was going to happen, it should have happened by now. By the way, you remember last time we said that the prophecies at this point have come in at least two sets. The first set was five years into the exile. The second set was six plus years into the exile. All of these prophecies that we have been reading are part of the second set. When we get to chapter 20, we'll get another time marker. So one of the things you can assume is this was all within the sixth year. 13.1. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who are prophesying and say to those who prophesy from their own hearts, hear the word of the Lord. So what he's saying is we got prophets out there that are freelancing. They're holding themselves up to be prophets, yet they are not speaking for God. Verse 3, Thus says the Lord God, Woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. Your prophets have been like jackals among ruins, O Israel. You have not gone up into the breaches or built up a wall for the house of Israel that it might stand in battle in the day of the Lord. I don't know if there was any serious damage to Jerusalem in the first exile. I just don't remember the answer to that. And if we take this metaphorically, which I'm about to do, you could say that the wall around Israel is God. And when Israel has gone into idolatry, they have made breaches in that wall. And so what he's saying here to the prophets is 
you are like jackals among ruins. The house of God, metaphorically, has been breached. We've got idols and all that kind of stuff going on here. You false prophets, instead of repairing those walls, have acted like jackals in the ruins. In other words, what you're doing is you're pawing through the ruins trying to find something to eat as opposed to using your gift of prophecy to rebuild this wall that has been destroyed. Do with that as you like. I kind of like it. So you have not gone up into the breaches or built up a wall for the house of Israel that it might stand in battle in the day of the Lord, which I'm suggesting is yet future still. They have seen false visions and lying divinations. They say, declares the Lord, when the Lord has not sent them, and yet they expect him to fulfill their word. Have you not seen a false vision and uttered a lying divination? Whenever you have said, declares the Lord, although I have not spoken. A couple of things here. Obviously, they're rolling their own. The other thing is we had some talk about prophets oh, several months ago. And one of the things about a prophet, for example, Moses, is he is an agent, which is to say that he has room to act independently in the name of the Lord. For example, remember when Elisha gets mocked for being a bald-headed old guy, and he whistles up a she-bear, and they rough up the kids that are taunting him. Similarly, when Moses has finally had it with Korah and his crew, we get the business of God, if the place doesn't split up and the earth swallow these guys, I'm not your man. And the earth opens up and swallows them. This isn't anything God commanded. God did not command Elisha to sick a bear on those kids. Nor did God command Moses, okay, dispose of them this way and we'll open up the ground. That's the prophet acting as an agent. He has got the authority and power of God and he is acting on his own in a way that he thinks would be pleasing to God but not at God's direction. And of course we know that finally with Moses, God said, go over and sit down for a minute. You're killing too many of my people. And we get the business with the rod budding. So here it says in verse 6, they have seen false visions and lying divination. They say, declares the Lord when the Lord has not sent them. And yet they expect him to fulfill their word. In other words, they are expecting to be able to whistle up a bear or make the earth split or something because they are speaking in the, quote, name of the Lord, unquote. That's what that means. Verse 8. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have uttered falsehood and seen lying visions, therefore, behold, I am against you, declares the Lord God. My hand will be against the prophets who see false visions and who give lying divinations. They shall not be in the council of my people, nor be enrolled in the register of the house of Israel, nor shall they enter the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord God, precisely because they have misled my people, saying, Peace, when there is no peace, 
and because when the people build a wall, these prophets smear it with whitewash. One of the things that people often ask about, and I used to ask about it, is what does it mean in the Torah when they say, if you do this, you will be cut off? I'm suggesting to you, there's the definition right there. You shall not be in the council of my people, nor be enrolled in the register of the house of Israel, nor shall they enter the land of Israel. That I am suggesting to you is the definition of being cut off as it is used in the Torah. It is not killed. It is they are severed from the nation Israel, cut off and set adrift. So let me go back to verse 10. Precisely because they have misled my people, saying peace when there is no peace, and because when the people build a wall, these prophets smear it with whitewash. Say to those who smear it with whitewash that it shall fall. There will be a deluge of rain, and you, O great hailstones, will fall, and a stormy wind break out. And when the wall falls, it will not be said to you, Where is the coating with which you smeared it? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will make a stormy wind break out in my wrath, and there shall be a deluge of rain in my anger, and great hailstones and wrath to make a full end. And I will break down the wall that you have smeared with whitewash, and bring it down to the ground so that its foundation will be laid bare. When it falls, you shall perish in the midst of it, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Thus have I spent my wrath upon the wall and upon those who have smeared it with whitewash. And I will say to you, the wall is no more, nor those who smeared it. The prophets of Israel who prophesied concerning Jerusalem and saw visions of peace for her when there was no peace, declares the Lord God. Now what is this metaphor? Go back to the metaphor of the breach that the prophets have not built up. They have not gone and they have not built up the broken wall. And the metaphor that I am proposing The wall is the wall that God himself forms around his people. I will be a wall around them. I will be a shield around them. I will be around them, protecting them. And so when Israel goes into idolatry, idol worship, that wall gets broken. And that wall gets pierced. And so we started off with the prophet excoriating the false prophets who instead of repairing that wall, in other words, bringing people back to Torah, bringing people back to God, what they have done is they put up some wicker fences up there and they smeared them with whitewash so that they looked good. It looks like we have a complete wall, but there's no substance to it. So this idea of whitewash then is the people have built up their own wall, quote unquote, and for example, In Jeremiah, one of the things that happens is the people look up at the temple and say, we're going to be safe because we have the temple of the Lord here. Nothing bad is going to happen to this city because this is the house of God. This is the residence of God. God put his throne right here, so we're going to be safe. And of course, God says through the prophet, what you've done is you've turned my house into a hideout where you go off and do abominable things and then you run back to your hideout, not to repent, but to escape being caught by the posse. And I will not let my house be used that way. The point is, these people are saying, 
the house of the Lord. We got the house of the Lord. I am suggesting to you that that is a wall that these people have built up and these prophets have whitewashed it. So the point that's being made here is this rickety wall that the people have put up based on false understandings, bad assumptions, and willful self-delusion. And people do it all the time today. It's nothing new. So what the prophets are doing, instead of actually repairing the wall with good stone, they are taking these rickety structures that people have thrown up and they're smearing them with whitewash so that they look sound and they look imposing and they look like they're going to protect everybody. But what God says is, nope, I'm going to send some rain and the whitewash is going to get washed off and the walls are going to fall. What we're talking about is a skim coat. The houses and so forth in Israel were built of stacked stone. And then what they would do is they would take this lime plaster and they would put a smooth coat on the wall. I mean, we do the same thing today. They would put a coat of lime plaster on there. And my translation calls it whitewash. Yours calls it plaster, but we're talking about the same thing. The point is there's no structural integrity to it. It just looks good. What people have done is built up this fantasy theology and these false prophets have propped up that fantasy theology. In other words, they've whitewashed it instead of tearing it down and teaching good theology as they should. It's making this web of bad theology look like it's a solid wall that is going to defend you when in fact there's nothing structural there. So I'm all the way down to verse 17. You son of man, set your face against the daughters of your people who prophesy out of their own minds or hearts, prophesy against them and say, thus says the Lord God, woe to the women who sew magic bands upon all wrists and make veils for the heads of persons of every stature in the hunt for souls. Will you hunt down souls belonging to my people and keep your own souls alive? You have profaned me among my people for handfuls of barley and for pieces of bread, putting to death souls who should not die and keeping alive souls that should not live by your lying to my people who listen to lies. What this is is witchcraft and charms. How many people do you know that have charm bracelets? Charm bracelets today are mostly benign pieces of jewelry. You put things representing your kids, and there's no religious significance to them. That was not always the case. Charm is literally a magic thing that either gives you some power or wards off evil. Charm bracelets today don't have quite the same meaning as the original version. But what these witches are doing, and they are witches, this is witchcraft, they are putting together charm bracelets, and I don't know what the veil reference is, but the point is all of this is intended to be magical or lucky or ward off evil or any of those kinds of things. This is witchcraft. And what they are doing in that process 
is they are ensnaring people in the occult. And by snaring people in the occult, what they wind up doing is condemning them. Verse 20. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against your magic bands with which you hunt the souls like birds, and I will tear them from your arms, and I will let the souls whom you hunt go free the souls like birds. Your veils also I will tear off and deliver my people out of your hand, and they shall be no more in your hand as prey, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Because you have disheartened the righteous falsely, although I have not grieved him, and you have encouraged the wicked that he should not turn from his evil way to save his life, therefore you shall no more see false visions nor practice divination. I will deliver my people out of your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So this is witchcraft, occult practices, magic charms, all of those kinds of things. The comment was from Spurgeon that spiritual discernment is not the ability to tell right from wrong. It's the ability to tell right from what appears to be right and is not. Et ta chama.